0: Welcome to the Disaster Preparedness Journal Club podcast brought to you by the Center for Excellence in Emergency Preparedness or CEEP. I'm Daniel Kolick of McMaster University uh, and I'm a member of the CEEP Executive. The podcast is dedicated to reviewing the most recent disaster literature and for each topic providing an expert opinion from leaders in the field. Uh, The team behind the program are Dr. Valerie Homier of McGill, Dr. Jared Bly of Edmonton, and myself. Uh, Thanks are also due to the librarians at McGill University who have been scouring the literature to bring us the most recent and relevant papers. These were reviewed by Dr. Homier and a team of residents and medical students to select the most relevant for today's presentation. Before we go to today's topic, a reminder. Uh, CEEP, the Centre for Excellence, provides a multitude of educational resources at our website, www.ceep.ca, including a full textbook on disaster preparedness, uh, and it's absolutely free. The other thing is our next AWAY conference is in London, England, October 11th to 17th. Stay tuned at the end of this uh, podcast for a brief video teaser uh, about the conference. And I'll now hand over to Dr. Homier, who will introduce this podcast.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to our last podcast before the summer. Today, we selected a very important topic that has seen a lot of new literature uh, published uh, around it in the last uh, couple of years. So today we're going to be talking about decontamination of patients, something very tricky for institutions to organize, especially in countries with uh, very cold winters. So, without further delay, I will um, introduce, um, actually ask our guest to introduce himself, Mr. Charles Alexandre Campbell.
2: Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Charles Alexandre Campbell. I'm an advanced care paramedic with uh, Montreal EMS. Uh, I've been involved with the uh, CBRNE program since 2004. I've been teaching for Canada in, uh, uh, in uh, the uh, intermediate course as well as the Advanced uh, Life Agent Program in uh, CTTC, C- uh, Counterterrorism Technology Center in Suffield, Alberta. Uh, and I've been also involved with uh, uh, the GPP, the Global Partnership Program, teaching for Canada to other country in South America uh, in uh, any part of the world. So it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for, thank you for having me and uh, looking forward to discuss with you guys.
1: So the first article we're going to talk about is entitled, The Washington Effect and its Significance for Mass Casualty Decontamination. It was published in 2022 in the Journal of Toxicology and Environmental Health. So here's a little overview for this summary. We're gonna see what were the objectives, methods, results, We'll have a few conclusions summarized and we'll discuss. So before we go into those details, there's three elements in, in the terminology that are important to master to understand this article. So it's important to comprehend the difference between wet decon and dry decon. So wet decontamination is in general performed by specialized teams with access to water. Either using fire truck, fire hoses, uh, or uh, for example, um, city buses equipped with um, water that can um, be sprayed on patients. There are often uh, uh, simple showers, sprinklers that can be used. Dry decon is done by either rubbing or absorbing with material, but there's no water used. The washing effect is described as enhanced penetration of chemicals as a possible result of skin hydration with water. So this is a concern that arises when we use wet decon. It has been reported for many years already. And now in this article, um, it seems to be um, the goal here to uh, study that in further detail. More particularly, there are three objectives with this article, assess the current published information available to better understand this phenomenon, describe the proposed mechanisms for the washing effect, and explore whether the washing effect has implications for decontamination interventions. So brief overview of the methods. This is a literature review. All forms of publications, including gray literature, letters, peer-reviewed articles were included in the search, except from previous literature reviews on the topic, they were discussed but not included in the results. They wanted to focus on studies providing primary data. You can see on the screen that they had a specific uh, criteria and in the end, just to keep it uh, straight, they uh, included 18 studies in the review. The types of studies that were excluded are those who made no reference to the Washington effect, there was no primary data collected, or the study was completely out of the scope. Okay. So I put here the uh, picture extracted from the article that describes the four main mechanism that are proposed to explain the possible washing effect that can occur with the wet decon. The first on the left that you can see is hydration. So what happens to the skin that absorbs water that um, the skin can change its ability to absorb chemicals as well. There are physical effects which have to do with that friction and what that creates on the surface of the skin. A third main effect is the surfactant effect, which has to do with uh, the use of soaps and how soaps can actually uh, change uh, the ability for skin to absorb certain chemicals. And finally, the last uh, effect has to do with pH effects. So a change in acid, acid, excuse me, base measurements at the surface of the skin that can affect the absorption. So those are the proposed mechanisms. The study mentions the following results. Um, the authors mentioned they had that the uh, literature identified has provided compelling evidence for a Washin effect. Most studies were conducted in vitro, so not on human beings, and six potential contributory mechanisms were described. The Washin effect is likely a combination of these effects, that each contributes to enhanced penetration. So maybe um, I'll ask uh, our youngest colleague, Dr. Daniel Kolek with the, <laughs> the least number of years of experience uh, just to, to just chat to us about this if you want, if, if this rings yeah. a bell, just curious. Uh,
0: I have to say that this is not something I knew about beforehand. Uh, and when I, when I started reading this, I had a shudder go down my spine because everything we have done everywhere where there are decon protocols involves uh, some kind of cleaning down of people. And the vast majority of these is wet decon just because it's simple. now we know that the majority of the decontamination is getting your clothes off and getting rid of that. But uh, everywhere I know that is in a place that, is, uh, that has a facility has a wet decon. Uh, the exceptions, there were something set up for uh, specific sporting events in France a few years ago where they uh, had to do something quickly and they couldn't put up a wet decons, they created a dry with Fuller's Earth. Uh, so it worried me because, are we doing it wrong? Though I have to say I'm not totally convinced by the article. Uh, it worried me also because uh, specificity and trying to, you know, deal with different agents, different ways which is one of the things that they allude to, uh, is the uh, enemy of simplicity. And we need to keep things really, really simple. So uh, I, I found the article worrisome. I take some reassurance of the fact that I really wasn't convinced that there's any clinical impact uh, to the wash-in um, effect, but that's mainly because I haven't
3: got enough data.
1: Same question for Jared and uh, Charles.
3: Sure. Um, and I think I have way less experience than Daniel, but whatever. <laughs> um, I don't know if I've, I'd heard of it as as this, but I, I have been taught that uh, dry decontamination first um, was appropriate. And I thought that was the standard. I think this article is interesting in that it shows me that there isn't really a standard. If we're going back to in vitro studies and animal studies, I'm looking at primary data on this concept then that tells me that we're a long way from from understanding what a standard what standard um practice is um i'm interested to hear from shell if what what he teaches and what he understands as a standard and is it um dry first or or is this a, a new concept it's um
2: Thanks, Sir Jared. It's, it's, it's a very big um uh um it's a very big thing to to wrap my head around because most of what I've done is wet decon. Uh but it depends on what you have. Is it for like decon is a big, big thing. Is it for mass casualty? Is it for uh the first responders? Is it for the people that are dressed in level A? It's a lot of thing or just the walking people that you have and you emerge that they arrive. Uh, that, that's a big thing. And uh, if, it's a, if, if the person receives some wet liquid on them that dries out, I'd like them like it, they are walking. And I'd like them to, to get undressed and remove, as Danielle says, most of the, cat, the, the, the contaminant on them. But if they are unconscious, uh, I have to rip the clothes off. I have to cut them off. And first of all, I have to be protected. So if they walk in and you emerge, and they collapse into the, the your garage, and because they've been contaminated, that's an entire old ball game right there and then. So uh, are we are we protected to deal with those patients, or are we not? So when we deal with unknown is one thing, and when we deal with uh, 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 a known uh, aggressor. Uh, that's another story so most of my uh my my um experience has been done in wet decon uh but uh sometime it could be hybrid like if you do have something on your skin uh you can remove the gross contaminated and at the end of the day you will wash it off but
0: you need to be protected whether it's dry or wet oh definitely, uh, definitely. yeah so and there are risks associated with both because uh, if you're doing wet decon uh, you're going to be sprayed there's no way you're you're not going to stay dry you're going to be wet as well so definitely. You definitely need to have a different different kind of protection than if you're doing dry uh, the other thing is that um, for people who cannot decontaminate themselves uh, as you said uh, it's going to be very hard to do a good dry decon on them right? Just physically hard, you know, how are you going to get things everywhere? Whereas if you spray them, you get a better coverage. So there are advantages to that. Um, and yeah, you can do hybrid, there's no reason why you can't do both. The other thing, the, I, the problem I have also with dry, I mean, there are advantages, but we can get to that. But the problem I have with dry is anything that's hairy isn't going to work. You really are not going to get good penetration with dry decon into hairy areas. Uh, whereas with wet, you can because you can actually work it in. Um, and if we're already going to use some specific substances, then we probably should think of using things like RSDL or like a skin decontaminant lotion that might be better than you know something simple like a Fuller's Earth, though more expensive. Have you, Alexander? have you used RSDL or any of the other decon lotions?
2: Yeah, I did have the pleasure to work with the guy who invented the product. His name is Dr. Garfield Pyrdom, who is in Southfield, Alberta. And him and his team uh, just created this product uh, that's been uh, commercialized mostly by Americans at this point in time. But uh, they, they, they worked out that one pouch could do an entire human, like the average human being. And they had the sponge afterwards because uh, it needed a bit of friction in order to remove what's there as a m- like mechanical removing. But the RSDL is there to neutralize wh- wh- what chemical, biological you have on you. So it's a great product. It, it got some downside as well. It makes the patient very, very slippery. So uh, you have to be careful with it, and it is expensive and not readily available for everyone. So if you're in, in a team, you would have it as part of your PPE, like with your antidote and things like that, but uh, it's not readily available to everyone. That's the thing.
1: So thanks for all the comments. I'm taking you back to um, the paper. And just for uh a- historical perspective, it is mentioned in that article that the uh, washing effect was reported in the literature as early as 1977. So I also was um, a little bit surprised to to read about this in 2022 without having had a lot of warnings provided in prior training about this. And um, at my institution, there's been some efforts recently to try and incorporate a dry decon protocol for exactly the situation that Charles was bringing up, which is uh, a couple of patients walking in with uh, contaminants on their body and uh, the lack of ability to mobilize a large specialized team uh, with the decontent, uh, the sprinklers, which are not uh, operational outdoors uh, in most Canadian facilities because of the winter time where that setup would not function. Some hospitals have a uh, proper heated garage with a decon facility indoors and don't have that uh, problem, but that's not the case everywhere. So basically, um, this is an interesting concept. I think we have to follow the literature on this topic. Uh, my understanding is uh, this is not an article that to tell us to stop to do wet decon. No, this is an article that reminds us that not all chemicals are the same, that we need to continue studying uh, the the physical properties of uh, uh, the interaction between the skin and the chemicals and the water, and also uh, the methods that we use to remove most efficiently. Uh, So it seems that most protocols around the world now are going to include a undressing of patients, a dry decon followed by a wet decon, And that's for the reason brought up by Dr. Kolic, which is there are some areas are very hard to uh, properly decontaminate the hair and uh, areas that are not easily accessible by rubbing or um, so maybe uh, the back, uh, uh, those types of areas.
0: I'm going to to throw in one other thing and that is that um, the choice of methods to some degree is going to depend on what you can do in your local environment. Uh, if you're in a small facility and you do not have the ability to uh, arrange for showers, then dry decon is going to be what you have because you you haven't got anything else, and it's cheap and quick and and, and to set up if you have to. Uh, if you're in a well-resourced facility, you might have the stuff plumbed in ahead of time and you might do both. But to some degree, I we all I think we all agree that some decon is better than no decon. So um, I I really am very cautious. I wanna reiterate what Valerie said, that this is not saying that we should not do wet decon, right? You do what you gotta do because uh, based on what you have available, ideally you do a hybrid if you could, but it's not not to do wet decon. I really wanna make sure we make that clear.
3: And I think we wanna be careful not to replace common sense with evidence that so that if, you know, if we're covered with a substance or a patient is covered with something, we're going to remove it in whatever way we can. So if I have a dry powder on me, I'm gonna brush it off or dust it off. If I'm covered with a liquid, then I, I can blot it off with something dry that we're gonna, we're gonna use some common sense. And I think that's appropriate. And that takes care of, of some of the issues around this that, that will never really be included in a study.
1: Okay. So second article for today, a review of the efficacy of easily accessible dry decontaminants for human chemical contamination. You can see the authors uh, Saisha Nandamuri, Eileen Festchuk, Howard Maybach. This was published in 2022 in the Journal of Applied Toxicology. <laughs> So the summary for this article is the following. This was a literature review performed by the authors that I've just named about the different methods to perform dry decon and how to actually perform it. They included seven studies that met eligibility criteria. And basically they concluded that a few elements mattered uh, to obtain successful decontamination. So number one, it was important to compare what kind of method was used to perform the dry decon. So rubbing, blotting, and also the type of material used. And in addition, they were able to demonstrate that if instructions were provided clearly to the contaminated participants, the successful decon was uh, more likely to occur. And finally, a combination of protocols for performing decontamination yielded better results than a single type of decontamination alone. So about this um, article discussing the different dry decontamination methods, um, I was wondering if one of you would be uh, curious to discuss a method they hadn't used before that they read about in this article on how to do dry decon?
0: I, I want to leap in because while the previous article worried me, this one actually irritates me. <laughs> it's, and I'll tell you why. Uh, I mean, I, I have never done a dry decon. I, I've used RSDL, uh, but I've never done anything other than that. I've never done Fuller's Earth or anything like that. But I want to read a sentence that I, I, I highlight. They say, the fact that all dry decontamination methods tested resulted in reductions in contamination, whether statistically significant levels or not, is of relevance considering some wet decontamination methods such as soap and water can result in an increase in contaminant absorption due to the washing effect. So they're saying the fact that wash-in effect exists uh, is, uh, should make us consider dry decontamination. Well, no. Dry decontamination does one thing; the washing effect exists, but ultimately, if you wash more stuff off, you're going to be better off than you were before. Uh, So they're they're putting these two things together in a way that doesn't actually make sense. They are not comparing the clinical efficacy of one or the other in terms of clinical outcomes, Uh, and uh, then they follow that with a statement saying. Uh, one should use the fastest approach that causes least harm and do the most good for the majority of people the bottom line is that i come back to you do what your facility can do you do whatever you do best and fastest and if you can do the cadillac of dry and wet great if you can't then you do what you can
3: i think this reflects a, the same issue with anything in this area and that that there isn't really a gold standard, and even if there is, it's not really known because this is something that's so infrequently encountered for most of us that even if there was a gold standard, we wouldn't have it in our minds as easily as, say, anything to do with cardiac issues or or other common presentations to, to hospital. Um, the, the good thing is that it, it is rare and... There was another study in one of the articles that 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 we previewed for this that talked about whether there was actually secondary contamination, and whether there was, um, yeah, whether there was any any clinically significant secondary contamination. This was an article by De Groot um, and others, and their conclusion was that secondary contamination is is uncommon which I don't agree with because we've there are studies and um, we discussed prior to this uh, there's a we have a local study where we've looked at whether people are actually contaminated in the field like we assume they're supposed to be and it rarely happens but this article by Groot looked at essentially clinical outcomes. Did people die? Did people were they admitted? Did they have burns? Did they have respiratory events and those were very low so regardless of how often the secondary contamination happens um clinically this is is rare upon rare to to be significant if that makes any sense so it makes sense to get rid of whatever contaminant we can with whatever means we have Um, dry makes sense Um, i agree with daniel that that there were two different levels of evidence that they were using to um, presenting them as equal, but um, the reality is that the clinically significant contamination is, is uncommon. So um, there's some justification to just do what we can.
1: So in the article for those who are not too familiar with the dry decontamination methods, they mentioned a, a few examples. So Fuller's earth and absorbing powder that generally uh, allows for rapid and reliable decontamination. There's also a decontamination gel, which is a substance that has a thick consistency that you apply on the skin. You have to allow it to dry for five minutes before peeling it off. So that's mentioned. Also the uh, simple uh, use of a, uh, a material, an absorbent material. So tissue, paper towel, even diapers that can be used to do some blotting or rubbing on the body where the uh, contaminant is located. And so that would be uh, the most simple method that is the most readily available of those that I just mentioned. So I think this is an important moment to, to reiterate like w- what it is that you can do in a situation where you don't have access to the full uh, setup of water, and maybe uh, that that should be considered for sure. Okay, so that was an important point I wanted to make about this, uh, this um, article. I would like to speak with uh, Charles a little bit or hear Charles on the topic of dry decon uh, and also wet decon. So basically the question is um, in the EMS world, um, what is most uh, used? Given that often you are mobile and do not have access to a, a complex uh, water system uh, initially.
2: The the most important thing is our staff is our staff secure to do this job. That's the thing. If I'm going there and the person is contaminated with whatever chemical agent there is, um, am I safe to work there? Am I safe to work in this area? Should I be the one to intervene in these things? or should I call fire department and get asthma down there? Because if I don't have any respiratory protection, uh, if one person is injured, um, like there's no point of injuring uh, others when we are not the one who should intervene. So decon should be mostly part of a specialized teams. I can do over the barricade decon and talk to those person and say, well, what was it and what did you feel and things like that. But at the end of the day, I, I, I should not be right in it and uh, tell them what to decon and breathe the same air that they're breathing. If they're coming outside, I can put them upwind, uphill and things like that and ask them to do, uh, like use what we have, throw them things to use uh, until we wait for the, uh, the the first responder team. But at the end of the day, uh, if people are contaminated with chemical, Uh, It should be a specialized team that works there and uh, decon those people and afterward hand up to uh, like giving uh, to the uh, ambulance services at this point.
1: Probably the most important thing would be to provide a way for contaminated patients to undress in a most private manner possible, because that's the issue I find. Yes, you want to do the, the dry decon, you want to maybe blot or rub or absorb. Uh, or whatever, use the fuller's earth, but first you need to remove the clothes, right? And how do you do that in the middle of a public space? I mean, I would say in Canada in general, that, that would not be expected that someone would feel comfortable doing that. So I don't find that that's readily available uh, to paramedics or even in hospitals where you quickly have a way to shield a person.
0: So I, I agree a hundred percent. Uh, with what Charles Alexandre said in that if you're not trained to decontaminate, you shouldn't decontaminate. Period. End of story. Whether it's at a hospital, whether it's at a scene, because all you're going to do is contaminate yourself and create another patient for for us to treat. Uh, There is a fallacy that people are going to wait around to be decontaminated. And the thing is that if there is an event, people are going to try and get away as fast as they can on their own steam. And those are the least contaminated people, they will because they will have had a chance to leave. And those are the ones who can decontaminate themselves. So in terms of privacy, if we can communicate widely to people, tell them to go home, put their clothes immediately in the laundry, um, and shower down. Now, yes, they can do dry decon at home, like blotting or or, or so on. But ultimately, and then they have to dispose of that material carefully. uh, Ultimately, Uh, they're not going to have any other form of dry decon at home, so they can shower at home, shower copiously, which will also dilute the uh, pollutant in the uh, water system. At the hospital level, those patients who will arrive, we cannot assume they were decontaminated at the scene because in a review of over 70 American events recently, not one event that presented to the hospital had patients decontaminated on site. It is not a reasonable assumption. So uh, I think that we have to assume that they're gonna come dirty and decontaminate with whatever we can do best and fastest. Uh, and from the viewpoint of, of EMS, I'd like to hear from Charles Alexander about uh, if you can't decontaminate, what is your what, how, what do you train your staff to do? Because you're gonna be potentially transporting a patient who could be off-gassing uh, in, your, in your vehicle. Good question, uh, Daniel. Uh, what is
2: uh, trained for the uh, the MS service and everywhere I went and everywhere I trained is not to transport people that are chemically contaminated with anything. So uh, if they are contaminated, they can't be transported. The only exception to that is radiological that the uh, the, the trauma uh, have priority on the contamination as well as you have like proper pre like just the, the the normal PPE that you normally wear, and uh, we prioritize. We advise beforehand that we have radiological uh, contamination on board, and uh, we are transporting to your facility. So you guys are used to that. You have radiology uh, at your hospital and things like that, and that can deal with it. But prior to that, is uh, if it is chemically uh, uh, contaminated there will be no transport in EMS. There has to be decontaminated
0: before transport. That can pose a problem, as as we all understand, because if there's a large um, contaminated group of people, uh, those who are mobile are going to leave, so that's not a problem for EMS. But those who are there, the longer they're there, the more contaminated they can become or more exposed they can become if the source is still active. That's that's the reason
2: why why the uh, first responder has to be uh, like uh, trained in order to do decon and treatment in the same time uh, on uh, on on site while decons uh, uh, happen. So you can't stop decon for treatment and you can't stop treatment for decon. There has to be done uh, simultaneously from both services. That's why a CBRNE team should be like one team, and we all work together. And the same goal is to save people and stay safe while doing it. So that's what that's what we need to do. So we need to be trained. Uh, we need to be good at uh, identifying what we're dealing with, what kind of decon we need, and uh, treat those person uh, as fast as possible and warn the people that will be first receiver in which beast we're dealing with in order for them to protect themselves as well and uh, be efficient on the the, the treatment coming up.
1: So bringing you back to the article, they do uh, suggest that a combination of methods is more efficient than a single method. So basically, reviewing all these studies, they they, they seem to direct us towards protocols that include dry followed by wet decon. So, so this, in that sense, might be a change that uh, uh, we um, may want to uh, follow um, from my work uh, reviewing this topic and speaking with the different uh, leaders and different organizations and especially in the UK, it seems that uh, this is the new uh, normal now uh, to use drive followed by wet uh, decon so. Will there be a change coming towards uh, the pre hospital uh, protocols in the future, maybe, maybe not as something i'm curious to to hear more about but. This is the point. The point is that maybe it's better to do both. And that's what this this review is is suggesting. Uh, And the other point I'd like to make is that I've been in the business for almost, uh, what, like 15 years now? And uh, my assessment of budgets for training and the frequency of exercises, including proper decontamination of of, uh, simulated patients uh, has been uh, limited. And it's always a struggle to organize these types of events. And with the frequent changeover of the staff that I'm witnessing, it's worse uh, recently, we always feel that we're not properly prepared to do specialized decon. So personally, I do believe that organization must include simple methods that can be put in place quickly without uh, the staff feeling completely overwhelmed by the complexity of the procedure and the amount of equipment to organize before you can actually decontaminate your first patient. So in that sense, just for the logistics, I would say, yes, we need to include a dry decon protocol, if not already done in your institution, I believe that will potentially prevent more uh, contamination through uh, skin absorption and such, as opposed to having the patients secluded in an area and wait for the specialized team that may take over an hour to uh, be uh, put in place in certain areas and maybe more on weekends and overnight.
0: Yeah. i have to say that in in my comments i'm usually when i'm referring to dry i'm referring to applying something dry like a fuller's earth like an rsdl i mean blotting is again like what jared said is common sense that
2: yeah and sense. it's
1: cheap and it's it works i mean you yeah. take it off it's not there it, anymore yeah.
2: it works it works when you're there the, the the problem is like when they arrive to your emergency they dry as a rock like there's nothing to blot no more like
3: Mm -hmm. well it was wet when i
2: started my car but now it's dry yeah so what am i doing on me nothing
3: advanced hazmat life support which is probably as close to a standard as you get says dry wet dry and it's and it's blotting it's nothing specialized and then even the wet is water plus or minus soap but water is adequate and showering they say five minutes is all that you really need. You can do longer if, just for fun, but you don't need that. I think it's uh, the general principles is really important to understand. And I think these articles and this discussion is really useful for that. And I think it's also useful uh, to understand that specialized decontamination is exactly that. It's specialized. And just because there's a a, a chapter in Rosen's or tintinelli's about decontamination doesn't mean that we are experts in it Um, so probably part of any protocol would be to recognize a serious exposure and to know who to call to help us
0: i i agree i also keep on coming back to something is better than nothing not everyone will be able to deliver the cadillac but uh you know if you if you drive something different it still gets where you want to go so uh we shouldn't be handicapped in terms of setting up our plans because we can't get it perfectly. We should get something set up so that at least we have a plan. Ideally, if you want to do dry followed by wet, fantastic. Uh, But if you just have wet or you just have dry, that's what you got, get that right. Be be sure you know how to do that. One little practical tip uh, in some of the Israeli hospitals, what they do, the, the gear is locked up. And when you open the cupboard, With the gear they have all the instructions on how to use things right there on the spot so that you don't have to go looking for it so you crack the cupboard open everything is there we need to keep those skills up and if we're not going to be able to do that well we should at least have some prompts in place like again written instructions
1: absolutely good point uh danielle about uh written instruction that was actually mentioned in that last article the importance of giving clear instructions to uh the uh, people receiving uh, the decon or doing the decon, absolutely. Clear instructions and in writing potentially multiple languages, if, if that's possible. OK, and last word goes to Charles, our guest for today. Pleasure to chat with you. Um, what would you like to take home from uh, this session?
2: Same here. I think uh, what uh, Jared and Daniel said, uh, all your points are valid. Uh, Any decon is better than no decon. Sometime uh, uh, the, um, let me rephrase that. In the hospital, like you don't need anything sexy. You just need a a tarp to say, get get rid of your clothes right now and put this Tyvek on.
0: That's it. Let's start with that. Let's stop the problem. I'm gonna put a little plug in. Part of the conference in London is going to include a full-scale CBRN exercise at the Royal London Hospital, which is the biggest hospital in London. So stay tuned for the teaser at the end of this podcast. But just if this is a topic that interests you, that is going to be well covered.
1: You bet, Danielle. I'm attending, that's for sure. I wouldn't want to miss that. So I want to take this uh, moment to thank all of you for participating. So Jared, Danielle, Charles, thank you so much. Very interesting session. We're going to have to follow the literature on this topic. The contamination of patient is difficult, and we need to find good ideas in the literature and from our colleagues all around the world, uh, starting in London in October. Uh, So stay tuned for another episode later this year, aiming for September. Have a great summer, everyone. See you soon.